Hey Icon, Josh here. So we are continuing in our series on John this week and we have a whole lot to cover and a lot of different things to talk about. But first, I just want to slow down. I just want us to slow down and really uh, get, a, get, get our hearts right before the Lord that he might help us as we go through this. So go ahead, go ahead and pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ways that your word uh, kind of gets into us and messes us up a little bit in all the ways that uh, we've gone wrong and all the ways that we're thinking wrongly, God. And I, I pray that you would do that today, that there's some things that we have to talk about today that keep us from following Jesus rightly with devotion, with, with truth and with sincerity. And so I pray, God, that by your spirit, you would help us to see those things today and to feel a sense of conviction so that we can follow Jesus rightly, God. It's what we want more than anything. And so, Father, would you unite your power with my weak words and, as a consequence, bear fruit in our lives together here at ICON. Lord, we entrust this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. ICON, I have a confession for you, and it's, it's a big one. Honestly, it's something that I just got to share. And this is something that for some of you guys, uh, you're going to think of me differently after this. I might go down a couple notches in your book, but nonetheless, it's true about me and I want to share it. My confession is this. I love The Bachelor in The Bachelorette series. I just do. It's always been like really entertaining for me ever since I was like at the age of 15 when I could start watching it. It's, it's always been really intriguing and entertaining and really for a couple different reasons. One of which is like I'm kind of a closet romantic. Uh, despite me being a five on the Enneagram, there's this piece of me that's like super idealistically romantic. And my brother in high school called me a serial monogamous, meaning like every girl that I dated, like she was the one I had finally found her. And so there's this little kind of a little gooey piece of me that enjoys watching uh, other people like go take these romantic trips together. So that's one thing. But the main thing is the drama. <laughs> That, that show is so dramatic, and every single season, without fail, Chris Harrison comes on before the season starts and just talks about, you are not going to want to miss this. this. This season, something's going to happen that we've never seen before. This is the most dramatic ending to any series that we've had, any season that we've had so far. And so the drama is, is really entertaining, and honestly, it's really nice, I, I think, to be able to watch some other people kind of be... Uh, dumb in their drama when your own life is really difficult. Like the you know watching it in 2020 and even watching it now this year has been really therapeutic in some ways because it's nice to watch some other people be kind of dumb when your own life is is kind of difficult. And the best kind of uh, dumb drama on that show is this. And it happens every single season. There's always one or two of these uh, that happen. There's there's a contestant in the house who is consistently the voice of contention and toxicity and drama. And then whenever someone comes to actually confront them on it, they have no idea. Like they don't, they don't even know where the conversation is coming from and they totally deflect and blame shift and it's as if they've been living in a whole nother reality. Like they are totally missing the point. They, they, are, they, are not, they can't see what's been going on this whole time in the house and how they're the source of drama and contention. And specifically this season, there's a really good one. It's like, yes, Victoria, you're the source of drama. Why can't you see that? So that, that's the best kind because it's really entertaining and kind of interesting to watch someone be so kind of out of touch with what's going on, be so caught up in themselves that they can't see what's right in front of them. And that 
There's a little bit of that happening in our text in John 7 today. That, as we'll see, the, the crowds and the Jewish leaders cannot get Jesus right. And it's as if they've totally missed a point on who he is. Like John 7 is just this long chapter showing the efforts at which the Jewish leaders went in order to miss the point. They, they can't see Jesus rightly. They can't get their, their head around who he is. And so they ask these really strange questions and these really pointed questions all in order to kind of trap him. But, but Jesus is going to show in this text, as we'll talk about, uh, a correction of like, you're totally missing the point. That, that's not what this is about. That's not who I'm about. That's not what I've, co I've come to do. And so we're going to look at that today. And before we look at it, I do, I do want to say, all of us have misconceptions about who Jesus is. I think it's really easy for us to look at John 7 and really any point in the Gospels and kind of look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and be like, man, like, why couldn't they get it right? He's right in front of them. He, he keeps correcting them. He keeps, like, they try to back him into a corner, and Jesus kind of, with his teaching, shows up again. Why can't they get it right? All of us do that. All of us, whether we know it or not, have some type of misconception about who Jesus is. That, that Jesus, in, in his perfection, contradicts each and every one of us on, on any given topic. Because we are sinful and because our minds, what, what theologians call the noetic effects of sin, our minds are, are broken in their thinking. We, we get Jesus wrong in some really important ways. And one of the ways we get him wrong a lot of times is in his authority, which this text is, is going to talk about and we're, we're going to go through that. But I want, I want you to be thinking about as we go through this sermon, as we go through this text, what are, the, what are the ideas about Jesus that you have that are absent from the Bible or d directly contradict how Jesus presents himself? Because the truth of the matter is, the reason we have misconceptions about Jesus is because we have frustrations with Jesus. Because he, he, he comes toward us and he says things about us that we don't like. And we want him to come at us in a different way. We are, we are frustrated. We want Jesus on our own terms. And when he doesn't come to us on our terms, whether that's in our affections or in our thinking, whatever it may be, then we, we begin to change some things up. We begin to have some misconceptions about who he is. We begin to have a Jesus made in our own image. And that is a danger to our Christian life. The reason people never come to the faith or the reason people, some people leave the faith is because these misconceptions are never confronted, are never talked about, and are never brought to Jesus. Are never, the reality is never addressed to those misconceptions. And so we get disillusioned when Jesus doesn't come at us in the way that we think he should. So let's, let's get into, into John 7. And we're going to see some specific ways in which uh, the, the Jewish leaders have some misconceptions about Jesus. And really, we're going to talk about two things. Um, and these, these two things are, are what you could call uh, authority structures in their mind. Uh, they're, way, they're these filters that the Jewish leaders are having and that all of us have that kind of uh, everything that Jesus says gets filtered through that. Everything that really anyone says comes filtered through that so that we can kind of uh, know for ourselves who to listen to. Like that's the big question. Who, who's worth listening to? Who, who's worth having a voice in my life? 
Who, who has the right to speak into my life? And as we'll see, the Jewish leaders do not want Jesus to speak in their life, does not want them to speak into the truth of their culture and of their nation and the ways they've gone wrong. And so because of that, they have some ideas that Jesus, about Jesus that need to be corrected. So let's talk about some misconceptions. First, the misconception of the elite. The misconception of the elite. Let's read a little bit of the text here, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump around. 7 verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show them, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So, the misconception of the elite. What's, what's showing here is the elite of what you could call celebrity. You see, in the, in the gospel so far of John, that right before this, Jesus had his biggest following he's had up until this point in John's gospel. Like he had just done this fantastic miracle that fed a lot of people. And when you give people food, they're probably going to want to listen to you. And so this massive crowd was listening to Jesus. And then later in chapter 6, Jesus says some really weird things about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And and the crowd totally misunderstands it and just, just punts on Jesus. They, they're like, okay, I got, my, I got my meal ticket and now I'm going to go ahead and leave. Because this is getting a little bit strange. Even his disciples say, this is a hard saying, who can receive it? And so right, right before this, he's, he's lost a lot of his following. Jesus is at a point now in the gospel, gospel where it seems like he's gone from the very top to the very lowest. He no longer has this massive crowd following him. And the ways in which Jesus' brothers address that, they address it almost as a PR crisis. They come to him and say, okay, hey, hey, Jesus, listen, there's going to be this massive feast up in Jerusalem, up in Judea. You should go. Like you, and it's sarcastic, obviously, because even John says that they don't believe in him. But nonetheless, they're coming to him and say, hey, the problem is that you just got to show off a little bit more, man. Like, yeah, you said this really weird thing, and that's really lost some following for you, but you need to come on onto the scene again and put on a show. You, you need to get big again in the eyes of the crowd. You need to have a big following again. If anyone does these works, they don't do them in secret. That's what his brothers say. They believe that Jesus' voice, in order for it to be effective, in order for Jesus to be effective in the mission that he keeps talking about, about doing the Father's works, they think that he needs a following to do that. And not just a, a small following, but one of the masses. They are obsessed with the elite of celebrity. That they think that whoever has the, the biggest following has the loudest voice, Jesus. And... <laughs> Do we not do that too? Do we not have that same fundamental flaw, believing that whoever has the biggest following deserves the loudest voice? That is our celebrity culture. That's the reason why like, celebrities get interviewed on things that really confuse me. Like, I don't get it. So I'll, I'll watch some of these things. I'm like, 
okay, like, yeah, Kim Kardashian, you have this massive following and you're like one of the biggest celebrities, but this is a really sensitive topic that you're not an expert on. <laughs> like, why are you the one being interviewed? Why, why are you the one who's being come to of like, oh, what, what do you think about this, Kim? I, I don't really care. I, I, that, doesn't, that doesn't feel like a smart strategy to move the ball forward. But nonetheless, we do it. Because we believe the fundamental lie that whoever has the biggest following, whoever has the biggest following deserves the loudest voice. And we, I mean, even we as Christians do this. I, I, I'm on Twitter, uh, Twitter and Instagram, but I, I rarely go on Twitter because it's really just a mess. And, but I, I found myself when I am on Twitter, when, you know, you get lost in all of the comments and the mentions and everything of some dramatic thing, some like really niche theological topic. And you're like, oh, what does this guy say about this? And whenever someone says something kind of uh, confrontational or provocative, I always click on their profile and I go. And the first thing, the reason I'm going to their profile is not to look at more of their tweets, but I want to see how many followers do they have? What I'm doing in that, what I'm doing in that moment is saying this person said something. How much weight should I give what he said? In order to figure that out, let me go see how many followers he has. And if he has less than like 4,000, then it's like, okay, he, you know, what do you know, man? We, we all do this. We believe that those who have the biggest following deserve the loudest voice, that those who have the biggest following are the ones who should be authoritative in our lives. What's... What's Jesus' response? He says this, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus goes to the core of that little fundamental lie and says, no, 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 no. Listen, the world elevates those that mirror it. That's what Jesus says. He says, the world, the crowds, the masses, they elevate only the people that mirror them, only the people that approve of them, only the people that show, kind of reinforce what they're already thinking, what they're already doing, what they're already believing. And Jesus says, I've come to not do that. <laughs> I've, I've not come to mirror the world. I've, I've not come to, to reinforce what the culture is already doing. Instead, I've actually come as a witness to the light. And as a witness to the light, I show the darkness of the, of the deeds of the world. And so your, your strategy here, brothers, doesn't work. And not only does it, does it work, but Jesus, by, by saying that, uh, that, that the world elevates those who mirror it, Jesus really gets to the point of like, if that's true, why do you even listen to them? Like, what's the motivation behind that? Why, why are you listening to the people who have the biggest following? You know why? It's because of people who mirror you. And that's the worst type of person to be a voice of authority in your life. That just becomes this echo chamber of what you already think, of what you're already doing. But Jesus says, because I've come to the world in order to show the ways in which it's gone astray, the ways in which it's gone awry, then that means I'm probably the best voice to actually speak authoritatively. Because I'm not here obsessed with the fear of man. I'm not here to mirror back to the culture what they're already thinking. And so I should probably have the voice that, that you, you should listen to, right? But 
they're obsessed with celebrity, and, and so are we. Not only that, that's not the only way that we're obsessed with the elite, but also this. Look, uh, look down to verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole man's, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So not only do we have the misconception of the eliteness of celebrity. Not only is that like this weird little authority structure that we filter the voices in our life through, but also here, the elite of credentials. That's what the Jewish leaders are looking for here. Jesus has, has just come into the temple and he's, he's, he's blowing their minds with what he's teaching. He's speaking authority. It'll say later in this text when the, when the uh, Jewish guards go to arrest Jesus and then they come back empty-handed, the Pharisees are like, why, did, why didn't you take him? And they say, no one's, ever, no one's ever spoke like this man. Jesus is blowing their mind. He's teaching with authority and he's teaching with precision, with insight, with knowledge. And what's the reaction of the Jewish leaders? It's right here. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied. This, this is the equivalent of, where did he get his degree even? Like, didn't, isn't this guy a high school dropout? Because you see, in, in the Jewish world, there is a, a really clear like, a code of conduct about how to become a teacher. There, there was a line that you had to follow. There was, there was a tradition that you had to follow, and it always ran through the teaching of another rabbi. That if you wanted to be a teacher of the Jewish people, then you had to first be a student of the teachers, which, yeah, that makes sense. But it, it had become such a, like, such a strong idea in the, in the minds of the leaders that they actually even had this, this Jewish phrase that I won't say that, that referred to the common people basically just as dumb. Like, they just had this prejudice of like, listen, the, like, we're the teachers, we're the ones who know the law, and the rest are all these common people. It actually even says that later when, it, when the Jewish leaders talk about, oh, this crowd is a curse. They don't even know the law. They're prejudiced. And they're prejudiced toward uh, credentials or, or, or really like uh, the personality of the person, where, where they're coming from, where, where they're coming from. How is it that this man has authority to teach this? How is it that this man has authority to teach what he's doing? Where did he even get it? Where did this guy get his degree? Their misconception is this, that if this guy is the Messiah, like he's claiming to be, shouldn't he have the right, right credentials, right? Uh, credentials by whose standard, though? 
You see, these people were obsessed with their own like framework of who was qualified. They were obsessed with the elite. These, these were the people who were high up in the academic world, in the intellectualism of the world, and everything had to go through them. And if you did not meet their standards of how they were thinking and how they came to think those things, then you're just one of the Jewish fools. You're just one of the common people. Just, just run along now. Does that, does that sound familiar? <laughs> does our culture have any prejudice toward those who aren't in the elite category of the academic world, which by the way is you and me. <laughs> not a lot of us went to Harvard or Yale here, and so we're not in that elite. But our, our, our culture and us by being a part of it and kind of absorbing some of the ways the culture thinks, thinks that everything that is, everything that should have an authoritative voice in our lives and in our culture at large should come through the person with the right credentials should come through the person who has the right uh, background, who has the right cosign of Harvard or Yale or NYU or UC Berkeley, all these, other, all, all these elite institutions. And anyone who doesn't have that, you're, you're just one of the common people. Like, what do you bring to the table? And I think they would say the same thing to Jesus. <laughs> Like, yeah, our culture has this weird, like, I, even, even in Seattle where it's super secular, you know, we have the highest percentage of those who identify them, themselves as atheists, but still there's this spirituality here that, uh, like, Jesus is still kind of, uh, kind of warm and fuzzy a little bit to some people, I think. It's, there's this idea of Jesus as, uh, you know, in, in that, in, specifically in that crew where it's like, yeah, I'm spiritual but not religious, they, they still have some sort, of, uh, some sort of admiration for Jesus. But the reason they do is because they, they get him wrong. They don't, they don't really accept his teaching. They, they don't really get what he's saying. And, and this, this category of the elite of credentials, this is what, this is what I want to nail here, is that the reason they, the, the, this little obsession they have with credentials actually kept them from even looking at Jesus' teaching itself. And this is what this does. This little authority structure, when it's obsessed with those people who have the right credentials, we don't even have the capacity or even the willingness to address and to assess the actual teaching in front of us. We're so prejudiced about personality that we don't even take a moment to examine, oh, well, let, let's hear this thing out. Let's, let's hear Jesus out. Let, let's, hear, let's hear what he has to say, and then we can, we can judge him based off of what he says. Jesus even says that. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And that's what he's talking about when he says that if anyone's will is to, to do God's will, then he'll know that what I'm saying is true. What he's saying is, if anyone here is sincere, if anyone here actually wants to find out the truth rather than be clouded by prejudice, they'll know that my teaching is true. If anyone wants to actually seek the truth, they'll know that my teaching is true. But they write him off. They write him off because he doesn't have the right credentials. Friends, very, 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 very rarely does someone reject Jesus off of the, just off of the, the raw material of his teaching. Most of it is, is, is prejudice. 
They don't even give him a seat at the table. They don't even give him an opportunity to show why what he's saying is true. And we, as Christians, like we've, we've, got, to, we've got to get rid of this, this elite of credentials. If you're going to follow Jesus faithfully in real life, then you've got to get rid of this authority structure that says that only that Jesus had to have the right credentials, that Jesus has to, that his teaching is first filtered through the minds of Harvard and Yale and all these other, all these other institutions that are totally missing him. Because the truth is this, Jesus was a first century Jewish carpenter who lived homeless most of his life and lost most of his people toward the end of his life. Like he was a bad leader, you know? Judge, judging by the appearances that we have today. He was not the elite. <laughs> he was not someone who, who today a ton of people would be flocking toward. But if we're obsessed with credentials, then we got to leave Jesus alone because he doesn't have any of them. The one thing he has is this, and this is the most important thing, divine cosine. That he says that here, that my teaching is not my own. God the Father has given me this teaching. And so that's why it's authoritative. That's why you should listen to it. Not because I'm here to testify about myself. Not because I claim my own sense of authority, but because God has sent me. And if you, us, friends, as Christians, like that's the core, that's the root. That Jesus, his teaching is divine. And so because of that, the fact that he was homeless, the fact that he was a first century Jewish carpenter, that bears no weight on the, on the truth of his teaching. Because we believe that he was divine. And, and if you don't believe that, like, I don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> if we don't believe that Jesus' teaching is divine, then this is a really dumb hobby. Church is a really dumb hobby. But if we do believe that Jesus' teaching is divine, if we leave behind that idea that Jesus has to have the right credentials, or that we have to have the right credentials even to, even to witness about Jesus then we have to receive his teaching in every area of life. We have to be sincere and uh, we, we have to follow Jesus where he goes. We have to take his teaching into our lives even when it messes us up a little bit. Even when it contradicts what we might be thinking or feeling. So that's, that's the first like major misconception. The obsession with the elite, whether that shows up in celebrity or credentials. Second one, and the final one here. The people here in, in the text, they have an idea about what the Messiah should look like. And that shows up in a couple different ways. Let me, let me show you this here. Some of the people, uh, this is verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Keep that in your mind. Look over at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Another piece of the little credentials, uh, elite of the credentials. Has anyone important believed in him? Anyways, 
But this crowd does not know the law and is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That little piece there. No prophet arises from Galilee. And then earlier, if the Christ comes, we won't know where he comes from. Where is that in the Old Testament? I, I can tell you it's nowhere. In fact, it's believed actually that Jonah came from Galilee, <laughs> that area. It's, it's nowhere in the Bible. It's, it's nowhere in the Old Testament. So what, what's happening here? What's happening is this. You see, we, all, we, we tend to forget that this is happening in a real life world, in real culture that is being formed. And, and one of the things that happens is, in culture is that there's some ideas that kind of start at the top and slowly make their way down to where, so, so, so widely to where all of the culture just kind of takes it as an obvious truth. That it's almost intuitive that this would be true. And this is what is happening here, that for a long time, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish rabbis had really misinterpreted this text in Ezekiel to say, oh, that means that we won't really know where the Messiah comes from. Totally misinterpreted it. And then as they were saying that, as they were spreading that, it just kind of came down into the culture to where they thought that's just obviously true. They had a type. They, they had a type that, that Jesus should fit if he's the Messiah. And this, what's going on here, is what Charles, the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary. That we together, in, every, in all, all cultures, we come up with ideas that slowly trickle down from the top of the top, the cream of the crop, and kind of come down slowly into the masses. And it, it, it spreads so widely that the ideas that trickle down just become like intuitive. They become obvious. They, they, it's, it's something that doesn't need to be proven because it's, it's obvious. And that's what they're doing here. It's like, oh, Jesus can't be the Messiah. This is their misconception. Jesus can't be the Messiah because he, we know where he came from, right? And we won't know that about the Messiah, even though that's nowhere in the Old Testament. It's just a piece of their social imaginary. It's a piece of their culture. It's an idea of their culture that had slowly begun to take root in their minds and hearts so firmly that it caused them to reject Jesus. And like I said, this happens in every single culture. Every single culture has ideas that trickle down and become so widely held that it's believed to be intuitive. It's just, it's just obvious knowledge. And there's some things, I think, in our social imaginary as the American West, and specifically as the Pacific Northwest, that have trickled down into our lives ideas about Jesus that are dangerous for our Christian life. What's, what's one of them? And this, is, I think, is the main thing. This is something that I think culture believes widely, but can't really identify, can't really identify an argument behind it other than that it just feels right, right? And it's this, that if Jesus is to have a voice of authority in my life, then that authority will come when he agrees with what I'm already thinking. Jesus can have authority in my life when his views match up with mine. When he approaches me in the way that I already think I need to be approached. 
when he speaks to me, when he, he, he moves me and, and, and talks to me and, and teaches me in a way that accords with the, the self-discovery that I think I've already come across. In other words, Jesus can never contradict me. Jesus can never be opposed to what I might be thinking. And if he is, then he has no authority. He has no right to speak into the situation because he doesn't already agree with what I think. There's this obsession, this, this deep-seated obsession in our culture that the voices of authority have to agree with us, have to come at us in a way that already matches up with what we've discovered about ourselves. We've set ourselves up as the authority. We've set ourselves up as the, 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 the finders of truth, the ones who can discover ourselves. And so because of that, when we already discover ourselves, we just need Jesus to come to be a, a divine cosign for that. We just need Jesus to come along and say, oh, yeah, just to kind of write, you know, Jesus, Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, signing off on our life. But Jesus is not here to do that. That's an idea that's, prop, that's popped up in the social imaginary of our culture that has no root in the Bible. Yes, Jesus is loving. Yes, Jesus is gracious, merciful, patient. He's, he's lowly and humble and comes at us in that way. But he's so, like, like Jesus' grace accepts us as we are, but it never leaves us as we are. It never leaves us as we are. And if it is leaving us where we are, We've got some misconceptions. We've got some ideas about grace and about Jesus and about ourselves that need to be corrected. And so grace comforts us in our hearts. It lifts us up where we are weak. It ministers to us in the deepest of sin. And there in that place, Jesus says, man, I, I want to take you out of that. I want to change this about you, not just because I'm a, not because I'm a bully, but because I love you and I know what you were created for. I know the life, I know the love, I know the nearness to God's presence that you were meant for. And so I'm going to, I'm going to purchase you with my blood. And then over decades and decades and decades of your life, I'm going to slowly transform you into the image that you were supposed to to have, that you were supposed to reflect out to the world. And I'm doing that because I love you. There's, there's this scene in, in The Great Divorce, uh, kind of towards the end, uh, where, where uh, the, the character is coming into, he's getting closer to uh, like being, I don't remember all of it together, but is coming together uh, closer to being like in heaven and being solid in heaven as C.S. Lewis talks about it. But he has this little thing on him. He, ha he has this massive lizard on him that is slowly whispering into his ear some, some things that, that would keep him from actually coming in to, to live in this new world that is called heaven. And there's this angel that comes and basically tells the character, like, listen, if you want to be here, I'm going to have to kill that. I'm going to have to take that off of you. And there's this, just this brilliant back and forth between the character and the angel, and eventually... The angel convinces this man to, to let him take it off. And it is searing pain. It is searing pain for this character who feels like this thing is a part of him. 
This thing is so deeply rooted in who, how, how he thinks of himself. And so to, to part with this, how could I ever? But the angels come to him and saying, if you want to flourish, if you want to be here, if you want to live here with joy and lightness and peace, I'm going to have to kill it. And the angel comes again and again and again and again. Sir, can I kill it? Sir, can I kill it? That's what Jesus is doing in our lives. He's coming to us and saying, you're not the way that you were created to be. And so I'm going I'm to cover you with my grace. I'm going to wash you clean with my blood so that you have a secure standing before God that can never be touched, can never be blunted. You have no fear standing before God. But as you stand before God, as you come closer to this, uh, to this new heavens and new earth that I'm, that I'm creating for you, that I'm going to bring to you, I want to change you. And if we're going to let Jesus change us, we've got to get rid of that idea that Jesus comes at us, that Jesus comes toward us in the way that matches up with how we already think about ourselves. That will keep us in the pit. That will keep us away, uh, away from the presence of God, away from a sense of nearness to him. We've got to get rid of that. In the beginning, I, I talked about how this text is an effort of the Jewish leaders and of the Pharisees to get Jesus wrong, basically. And that there's a, there's a way in which Jesus corrects them. And, and I want to talk about that here. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. All throughout this text, Jesus is answering the questions and objections and misconceptions that they have about him. And then here... He stands up on the scene and offers a corrective. And to understand this, you've got to understand what's going on here. So this is all in the context of, like it says, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of, uh, of Tabernacles. And what that is, the, the Jewish people had three big feasts uh, to kind of commemorate and celebrate the story of God's deliverance in their history out of, uh, out of Israel or <laughs> out of Egypt and uh, into the wilderness and saving them there. And specifically, this Feast of Booths was a way to commemorate the way in which God sustained them as they were in the wilderness, that he gave them living water from a rock. It was to celebrate that. And it was one of the feasts that was like the the scene to be at, man. Like it was the Coachella of the Jewish world. It's what everyone wanted to be at. It's, it, there's a vibe there that you just want to take hold of and be a part of. And so the way that this happened, the way that this kind of ended was, was here, what it says, the great day, the high priest would go up on top of the temple and he would do this kind of ritual going around seven times with this big bucket of water. And after the seventh time, he would pour it out as kind of a, a symbol of how God provided living water in the desert. And the crowd would just go crazy. And here it says that on that day, on that capstone day, Jesus is there and he stands up and says, what you're about to do, what you're about to celebrate, that's me. What, what you're feeling in you, the, the vibe that you're feeling, celebrating the living water that God gave you in the desert, I'm the fulfillment of that. 
And so all these other misconceptions, all these other ideas about me that I've graciously addressed, leave those behind, man. The reason why I'm here, the reason why I've come is to give you rivers of living water to come up out of your guts, out of the, out of the cardia, as the Latin word says, the center of who you are. That's where I want to go, and that's where I want to refresh you. That's why I'm here. So drop all the misconceptions, man. Drop all the frustrations and the ideas like, yeah, we'll get to those, but, but what you need is not your questions answered right now. What you need is rivers of living water to refresh your soul. And friend, that's what you need today. That's what you need, and that's why Jesus has come. To refresh you. Not just to, to, not to accord with who you already are, not just to answer your questions as he so graciously does, but to refresh you in your soul. Jesus comes to an exhausted, drought-filled world and says, all that you want, all the peace, all of the rest, all of the refreshment, all of the sense of restoration and strength and confidence and fearlessness, I've come to give you those things. And so, so for now, like, like drop all these misconceptions that are really just efforts at missing the point and see why I'm really here. See what my authority really does. I have the authority to give you the Holy Spirit. <laughs> to give you the Holy Spirit and for your soul to be refreshed. Are, are you exhausted today? Are you tired? Are you dry? Are you out of your depth in life, in family, in work, in relationships, in friendships? in general living in 2021, are you out of your depth and tired from it? Jesus says, I've come to refresh you. I've come to give you what you need. And that's what we need to hear today. That's why Jesus came. That's how he comes at us. (laughs) All of his changing of us and working in us is, is all coming with that central mission to refresh you, to change you, to take your tired and exhausted condition and swallow it up with rivers of living water that bring refreshment to our soul. And what does he say? Let him come to me and drink. Whoever trusts in me. You don't even have to have your misconceptions answered. You don't even have to not have misconceptions. He just says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. That's why Jesus has come. That's how Jesus approaches you now and even invites you now. Friends, don't don't miss that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you care about our tired and exhausted condition. And Jesus comes here for us to refresh us, God. I thank you that you're gracious with us in our frustrations, with the ways that Jesus contradicts us. God, you're gracious and merciful. You don't don't abandon the relationship because we have problems with it. But you graciously approach us, and you do answer our questions. But first, you want us to know what you've come to do is to refresh us. God, refresh us today by your Spirit. All of us are tired. All of us are needy. 
All of us are out of our depth. By your spirit, would you refresh us with your nearness and your presence, with a vision of who Jesus is. Help us to trust him and to come to him, knowing that all we have to have is the thirst to be quenched. God help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to do a short time of response. And we do the, the same things every single week. And uh, first, we're going to have a, some, some time of silence. And this is really important. After we've, after we've listened to the Word of God, after, after we've dwelled on the Word of God, we want to let it search us. And so ask yourself today just a couple questions. One, what are the misconceptions? What, what are the authority structures that you have in your mind that you're using to filter through Jesus' words on whether they should have a say in your life or not? What are those? But then two, and most importantly, where, where do you need to be refreshed? Where do you need to fall afresh at the feet of Jesus and say, I'm in need, would you, would you give me a drink that will satisfy? And then come to him and, and, and confess that. Offer that. Offer your neediness to Jesus. Offer your thirst to Jesus that you might be quenched. Second, we give. And we give because we know that there is so much more to do in Seattle. Because we know that the people we see on a day-by-day basis are thirsty. That they do not know God and yet they miss him. And they show that they miss him by all the other things that they're pursuing to fill that gap. And we want to have their thirst quenched with the Spirit, with the gospel of peace, to go out to them. So we give in order that icon might further that mission, might further that reach for people to know Jesus. And then finally, we're going to take communion. We're going to remember that all of the refreshment available to us in Jesus happens because we've been cleansed already. That we remember even on the cross as his side was pierced, blood came out and also water, but blood came first. Blood came first to wash us and then water to refresh us. So take that time to remember now and feel the sense of security you have before God and the refreshment that he wants to give to you.